Hello, you hot-tempered soccer coaches, and many thanks for firing up the 78th episode in the Scoring at the Movies podcast series. We kick around sports movies on this channel, and we spoil them from the locker room all the way out to the pitch. I'm the guy who never had the stamina to play soccer, but that wouldn't stop me from tearing off my shirt to object to a referee's call, Ryan Ellis. And here's the man who can barely get a word in edgewise, but without whom I am nothing, Lord Chris Gregorio. <laughs> You're back to being a lord. I've been getting ever more insulted with every recording that we've done where you've not used my proper honorific, but being nobility and all that now, I'm too polite to correct you. I'm happy to hear that you've progressed to tearing off your shirt, at least from the player's perspective, because I know your go-to move, at least when you're an umpire, is to tear off your pants. I don't know if that's in reaction to any blown calls or anything players are complaining about but i think we would all prefer if the pants stay on and the shirt comes off it's just a little bit more family friendly that way is that a reference to the fact that i tore my shorts one time and there's a big rip right down the side yes it is but okay yeah i hear you were showing a lot of thigh not much to the imagination as i understand it to explain to people i was umpiring in my own league which means it could be relatively casual and i was wearing cargo shorts and I had the ball in my pocket and bent over to brush off the plate. I heard this <laughs> noise, rip noise. And I looked down and the entire right side is exposed, except the very bottom. It wasn't because it was still attached by that stronger, you know, that little ring that goes on the bottom of a pair of shorts. No one commented. I pointed out to a friend on the other team and he said, oh, yeah, right. Look at that. <laughs> but yeah, I was sort of half naked for most of that game. You asked them what they thought of your thigh and are you impressed? Nudge, nudge. And they're like, oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> I was insulted he didn't ask me about it until then. <laughs> it's actually good they didn't notice. He was on the other side of me anyway. That's why he didn't notice until then. Fair enough. Okay, well, we're doing a soccer movie today. But before we start talking about footy, a sport that we know something about, but not that much. We've only done one soccer movie before. Bend It Like Beckham, also an English film. But let's talk about what you're drinking over there. I'm always concerned about maintaining my image as a paragon of alpha male manliness. So... To that end, today I decided to pull out a berry, banana, acai, and granola smoothie sour beer. And if that doesn't scream alpha male, I don't know what does. There we go. You never settle for Coors, and I do respect that. And I often settle for what I have right now, which is CC and I think Coke Zero tonight. Okay, well, El Nuevo Entrenador, as it was known in Argentina. What? El Nuevo and Trenador, that's what I see on here, was released over here in North America by Sony Pictures Classics in October 2009. It didn't even earn back half its budget at the box office. Big time failure. But the critics and the Rotten Tomatoes audiences both liked it. 92% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 139 reviews, so that's a pretty good sample, and 85% of audiences. And it was also nominated for some independent awards, several of which were British-specific I saw this movie many years ago and didn't remember much about it apart from the star Michael Sheen. I assume you had never seen it before. What did you think of The Damned United? Or if you go by the book's title, The Damned UTD, which means the same thing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I like the fact that 
it felt the need to spell out all of United and not just copy the title of the source material directly when they made a movie of this book. Most of the movies we watch, I tend not to feel too compelled to do additional research about them because most of the time I know them or I just enjoy the movie. This one, I had to do some additional research after I watched it because you're absolutely right. I've never seen it before. I had never even heard of it, didn't know it existed until you proposed that we watch it for the podcast. And I was left with so many questions about some of the choices that were made, the accuracy of it. But in terms of my general impression of this movie, there's a surprisingly good cast involved in this because you mentioned Michael Sheen, who I'll just say right now, I thought was fantastic. I like Michael Sheen generally, but I really enjoyed him in this role. He's good at playing a prick. Yeah, he is. You don't see him do it a lot. He's got pretty good range. He played Tony Blair so well in The Queen. And then, of course, he played David Frost the year before this, where he plays a hero-ish character as a journalist, finally gets nixed to admit he committed crimes, and then a vampire in Twilight, so that's obviously a villain, but also, as I recall, very over the top, so it almost became fun. But in this movie, it's fun to a degree, but he is not afraid of being an asshole for an hour and 38 minutes. He both felt like he was utterly committing himself to being that way, but at the same time didn't come across as hamming it up or anything. I really enjoyed his performance. I was happy to see Cole. I'm always happy to see Cole Meany. Although as Don Revy, I thought he was fine in this. I just didn't think he had a whole heck of a lot to do aside from maybe the one scene where he was doing the two-man interview, a tete-a-tete with Brian Clough. That's the big game in this movie. That is the big game when they finally meet head-to-head on a talk show. Yeah, it really is. This is a weird movie all in all. And the fact that that was effectively the climax of the movie is maybe the weirdest thing of everything. So I was a little bit disappointed that Cole Meany didn't have a whole heck of a lot to do. And the supporting cast is pretty solid too. The guy that plays Peter Taylor, I thought did a good job. And I know he's a character actor. Timothy Spall. He's one of those character actors. I'm like, oh, I know you, but I don't know what your name is. I was impressed with a lot of the performances, impressed with the cast. The movie as a whole... I don't know if I like the way they approach the story. I get the desire to tell the story because it's wacky. The real life version of it is wacky. It's interesting. Brian Clough is a weird dude. I don't know. Maybe it's the back and forth jumping in time element of it. Maybe it's the fact that it felt like they couldn't decide whether they wanted it to be a fictionalized story based on real events or whether they wanted it to be a biographical documentary style thing that seemed to vacillate between the two felt like betwixt in between a lot it just left me kind of scratching my head at the end of it i think i think if they told it in a more linear fashion maybe i would have been more sympathetic towards brian clough and understood some of the build-up towards it i lost some of my sympathy i think in the fact that we sort of saw what was coming before we saw why he felt the way he did well yeah i guess you're right Whatever happens with Darby, he's not going to stay with Darby forever. Not that he has to, not that any coach has to stay with one team, a lesser light team, although they had built up because of his coaching, certainly partly. Anyway, Darby, of course, but spelled Derby. But when you know he's going to go to the big team that he doesn't even like, doesn't respect, the opening montage shows the players playing dirty. They're also literally dirty. The director, Tom Hooper, does not mind getting his cast filthy and covered in a lot of water soak them as well another sports <laughs> right. movie we're seeing a couple this year alone i believe where players are playing through monsoon type conditions which i guess you can do in soccer well, actually it'd be tough to do wouldn't it works probably in rugby and football the best we saw it in the fan earlier this year i think we saw it in invincible there was a huge rain scene and other movies we've covered in the past but anyway hooper shows them being dirty in the opening and it's real footage of the Leeds players and all the vicious plays they had through their history and clef resented don revy's approach as a manager for that a field manager for that 
And then he goes to that team and he criticizes the players for that. I guess that's all real. I don't have a problem with them doing it that way. But that's basically the storyline is hating the previous coach who isn't there anymore. We call it coach. They call it manager or whatever. And his players, well, they don't back him up. One of the reasons he ends up getting turfed is because they don't really stand up for him. Well, I'll do the next show right now then because it does fit into this whole theme. Because this movie is not about sports really at all anyway. There is some soccer. But it's like Draft Day, which of course I liked quite a bit more, even though I thought this movie was at least solid. Not really for me, but solid. But Draft Day is also a movie with some sports in it, but it's way more about the boardroom and about the man in charge. That's right. a general manager, now it's a field manager. But here's the nutshell for the Damned United. Ferocious footy field manager fails. Still succeeds stupendously somewhere else. <laughs> We've got the arc where he has a problem with Revy, and he goes to Revy's team. And they don't like him at first, and they're not doing well, and that's why he gets fired. Not every sports movie has to be the same, but he gets fired, and then it's credits. Yeah. The real ending, I guess, of this movie, because the other big conflict, is with Pete. He literally begs Pete to come back and coach with them, and then we see just a very quick montage with some graphics on the screen saying that they won together. Well, the team did, but they were the coaches of the Nottingham Forest team. They won the Euro Cup, and then Revy failed as England's manager, so I guess the whole country, when they would play in the World Cup or what have you, I went to the Middle East and was a crook or something there. So Revy ended up being a loser and Clef wasn't. And I guess it's fine to end the movie that way, but it also feels like I was all turned on and I had all the candles everywhere. I had the birth control by the side of the bed. And then we just cut to the afterwards part. We cut to me being asleep and her asleep beside me kind of deal. Where's the third act in this movie? <laughs> and just to be clear, you're not making a metaphor here. What you're describing is just how you watch movies, period. Oh, yeah. You set up the candles, you have a box of condoms next to you, romantic ambiance going on, lighting. That's just like your movie watching setup. I did propose scoring at the movies as a title for this podcast that you like, so <laughs> that does fit. I do like a good double entendre, you know that. <laughs> I hear you. It felt like a weird structure to this movie, and when it ended, I thought exactly what you thought. Where's the third act? Surely there's a little bit of a redemptive arc here that we're going to see Brian go through because he just took his licks. He just had his comeuppance where he's like, you know what? I have been a right asshole this whole time and I have to apologize to my part. Although one of the things that I did read about this, again, I felt compelled to understand more about why the book was written and why this movie came to be. I don't think the breakup between Peter and Brian was quite as dramatic as the movie made it out to be. It was much more amicable okay. and just a matter of circumstance. In the movie, Pete has a heart attack, too. Maybe that's based on reality. So if he had a heart attack and health problems, that's a good reason not to be coaching a soccer team anymore as well. There's a scene in the movie where they both get the offer to go to Brighton, and they go on vacation on Brighton's dime, and then that's where Brian gets the offer from Leeds, and Peter says, no, no, I gave this guy my word. I don't want to go to Leeds. I'm fulfilling my promise. In reality, I think the two of them did go to Brighton. They were there for like a year, a year and a half or something. And then Brian got the offer and he left, but Peter just said, no, I'm going to stay put. About a year or two after that, once Brian had gotten canned and moved on to Nottingham or wherever, they joined forces again. What I was left feeling was that probably the book and the movie for sure, it just feels like a narrow cast. It's made, written or made or filmed specifically for an audience of people that know the history of football in the UK, that know this particular story about Leeds, about Brian Clough, and just want to see the lead up, 
and circumstances around everything that happened during these 44 days with leads. And then that's all they care about. And they don't really want to see a true biopic. They don't really want to see like a full character arc of the tragic hero rises, falls, and is redeemed at the end. They're like, I don't care. He just fell. That's good enough for me. That's the interesting stuff. Let's move on. <laughs> I don't know a lot about this author, but apparently he was a big fan of Brian Clough growing up. When Clough was with Darby, he met the author, the author being a kid at the time, and was like really nice to him. So I kind of got the sense that maybe the guy that wrote the book was just a big Clough fan, was really intrigued by this particular piece of Clough's career in life, but then ultimately didn't maybe view him as quite the tragic figure or the tragic asshole, frankly, that he comes across as in the movie. Instead, he just sees him as a flawed hero that maybe just had a little bit of a tough time. But hey, we all know he ultimately succeeded and was the most unrecognized manager in the history of England, as we're told in the end credits, which feels like a last minute bit of fan service by this guy towards Clough. It feels like it's made for a very specific audience and that audience isn't us. That is a very good analysis. That's excellent, actually. That may be why when it was over, I watched this maybe three days ago. So some details have probably already gone out of my mind. But I wouldn't say I disliked the film by no, no. means. But I also wouldn't even say I didn't care because there have been times we've watched movies where I didn't hate it, but I didn't care. I wouldn't say that either. But maybe that's what it is. It's a respect factor of a well-made soccer film that is very niche, as you say. But it didn't get under my skin at all. Legend of Bagger Vance is probably a worse movie. We did that, of course, two weeks ago. That probably got under my skin. Well, it did get under my skin more than this did. I don't know much about golf either. You mentioned the author, David Pierce. Now, the book is from 2006, so fairly fast turnaround of three years into a movie. So maybe the Clough story got changed by him, or maybe it got changed by Peter Morgan, who adapted the book. Morgan's also a producer on this. This guy's been excellent for about 20 years now. He wrote Frost Nixon. He wrote The Queen, both Oscar nominees in many categories, both Best Picture nominees, I believe. Both Sheen movies too, right? Michael Sheen's both of those. That's true. Yeah, Sheen is David Frost, and he is Tony Blair. Yeah. And then I don't know if he's in The Crown, but that's the thing of the last couple of years, one of the shows of the last several years. I think he created The Crown, but he certainly works on that as well. So Peter Morgan should be considered a powerhouse name, and Aaron Sorkin of England, he probably is that over there. He certainly should be considered that. So maybe he changed things to make it more antagonistic, but Clough's family said that this movie doesn't have its facts straight. So that could be on Pierce's book, it could be on Morgan writing it, or it could be on Tom Hooper directing it. I'm not the biggest fan of Tom Hooper. I think Peter Morgan's an excellent writer and a pretty good producer as well. But Hooper makes a solid movie here. Again, not really for us, but I can respect it. I like The King's Speech. Shouldn't have won Best Picture, but it is a good movie. But I hated Les Miserables. Les Insufferables, as I always call it. And I'm not watching Cats, because some people ruined it for me by never shutting the hell up about it. A channel I watch, and I like fandom entertainment, screen junkies, they're great, but they wouldn't shut the fuck up about this movie when it was coming out, I guess it was two years ago. So I refused to watch it, but he directed that too. I don't think I like this director is what it comes down to, because even though this movie is something I can respect, and The King's Speech has lots of good things in it, he's a good director of actors, at least in those two films. Les Mis was beloved by a lot of people, not me. Maybe that's the problem too. I wish I could put my finger on it. I texted you after I watched it and said, I don't know what tack to take in this <laughs> podcast. Because I don't know how I feel about this movie. There's a part of me that wants to say, two birds up, fuck you, I don't give a shit. But it's a good actor in the lead role. Michael Sheen is such a likable guy. And those other things we just talked about, in Frost Nixon, in The Queen, playing real people, playing another real person. He's played more real people in these three movies than most actors do in a whole career. He's played more than just these guys. Too. I think he's played Blair in multiple things, in fact, the former prime minister. And you mentioned Cole Meany is pretty solid in this. Doesn't have a ton of screen time, but he's probably the second most screen time of anybody in the movie 
the players aren't even close to having as much screen time. But Meany is the mayor in Mystery Alaska, who we thought was right. pretty good That's in that right. movie that yeah. he didn't love, but he's pretty good in that. And he works constantly. We've done basically six biopics this year, or at least six movies based on real people. It's been a big theme this year unintentionally. This is certainly not the worst one, but it's the one that I'm not going to remember anything about in three, four months. And I don't know why. Typically, a movie like this, even about a sport I'm not a huge personal fan of, though I do follow particularly the big tournaments every couple of years, I'm usually drawn to this, especially when the lead is somebody I really respect and enjoy watching, as is the case here. But I felt exactly the same way you did at the end of it. It's not that I disliked watching it. I think at various points, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Although at various other points, I was like, eh, I don't really care about what's going on all that much here. It felt a little unfocused. And I had no idea really what the director's intention was. What was their message here? What were they trying to get across to us? I talked earlier about this feeling like a narrow cast movie directed at a very specific audience. That's sort of me reverse engineering my experience. And maybe this is why it is the way it is, because this is who it's intended for. But I feel like in most of the movies we watch, virtually all of them, whether we like them or not, we can at least put our finger on, this is what the director wants us to feel. This is what the director feels themselves, whether it's a good character, a bad character, a biopic, a fictional movie, whatever the case may be, we can usually sense intention behind the characters and the actions in the movie. And in this one, at various points, I thought, oh, okay, you want us to hate Clough. You want us to just despise him because he's just being such a tool. But then the next scene, he's a nice guy, maybe. He's just totally out to lunch. Misunderstood. Totally misunderstood. Exactly. Okay, so hold on a second. Are you trying to get us to understand that he's now maybe a good dude, but in an impossible circumstance. And so he's just being miscast and mistreated. No, wait, now he's being a total asshole again. I don't know what's happening anymore. And then that's why the final sequence of text that comes up at the end of the movie, I was so confused. I don't know what you want me to think, director. And then the last slide comes up that says, Brian Clough has never been recognized as the greatest manager in the history of England or something like that. So you're just an enormous Clough fan. I didn't get that at all from this movie. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> the messaging, the intention just feels muddled and confused. Well, I like the idea of a human being not being consistent all the time, especially when they're a fiery personality like he is. And also a flighty one in some ways. There's a scene where he sits in his office seemingly through the whole game and he finds what they win when they come in and tell him, we won. It's never suggested that the players had a problem with that. But if I was a player on a team and the manager, coach, whatever you call it, because, of course, different sports call that person different things. But let's just call it a coach because that's what we know it as. If your coach isn't on the sidelines, it feels like you're bailing on us. It's not like it's Mickey back there having a heart attack. <laughs> ah, Rock, go take your beating from Clever. I guess I don't really object to him doing it. It's definitely an interesting way to do a movie like this. It's probably based on reality, although maybe the family would disagree. But I didn't really get that either. I guess you're agreeing with me then. Maybe you don't really know Tom Hooper's resume very well, but maybe he's just not a very good director. And this might be, ironically enough, his best movie, or at least second best. We've agreed on him getting good performances out of people in this. I don't think that's up for dispute. And in the King's speech. Why I referenced earlier the method of time jumping back and forth. Let's see what he's doing right now in 1974, and then we'll go back to 1962, and then we'll go back to 74, and then back to 68, and so on and so forth. You seem to want to cast... Clough as, I think, again, I think, a little bit of a tragic hero. 
yeah, he's a flawed human being. And I think they were trying to convey that in the way you're describing. He's not consistent because he is a human being and he's a fiery guy and that's cool. But it seems like they want us to feel sympathy for him. But that was very hard to do because I never really got the sense that what he had gone through justified the way he acted. I get he felt slighted by Don Revy, but the way the movie portrayed it, it was like, oh, he didn't notice you once or shake your hand. And then maybe you felt like one of his players slide tackled in a dirty way against one of yours once. That feels like a pretty slim excuse for a lifelong vendetta. To be this angry about for that long. Yeah. yeah, he's a fiery guy and not all feelings are rational. Maybe it was a fixation that didn't have a rational basis, as the movie would portray it anyway, because I hear what you're saying. The family would dispute the accuracy of the whole thing. But if this is what the movie wanted to convey, I think I would have preferred just like a more basic, almost biopic-y kind of layout. Show me Brian doing his thing with Darby as a young coach, if not earlier. Show me a little bit of what's going on with his family, because there are periodic scenes with his wife where he just seems to like up and bolt. And you kind of get a sense that maybe there's familial discord going on because of that. And in fact, later in the movie, his two kids are always with him. And we never see the wife anymore, right. but we don't have any explanation about why that is. The kids are just with him and the mother's nowhere to be seen for those 44 days. So there's aspects there that never really got elaborated on, just sort of touched at. If they built a little bit of a story, like you see Brian Clough watching Don Revy with Leeds succeed while he's slogging it out with Darby, trying to get them out of the second division. And then we get that moment where he's all excited to meet him. He's polishing his bottle of wine and then he gets slighted. And then you get a little bit more buildup of this sort of imagined relationship, build up that vendetta a little bit more so that when he ultimately gets this chance with Leeds, you understand why he self-destructs so wildly, because as it stands right now, it seems nonsensical almost that he would alienate his best and only friend in the world, leave behind a plum gig where he's wanted for one where he effectively isn't, alienate his players, alienate the fan base, alienate the ownerships, just do everything he can do to fail. None of that really makes a lot of sense the way it was portrayed, at least the way I viewed it. I wonder if maybe, because I think he was in power at this point, Vladimir Putin has something to do with this. <laughs> Vladimir Putin... Just like Osama bin Laden beat America. Osama bin Laden, 9-11. Oh, what a hot take this is. But I've probably said this on the podcast with Bed before. One on 9-11, or certainly in the weeks after when America lost their minds and decided to change everything about themselves. Psychologically, at least, he beat you. Vladimir Putin beat America the minute they turned against each other, which they've been doing so badly for many years now. So maybe the idea here is Brian Clough hated Leeds so much that when he's offered the job, he'll take it so he can bring Leeds down. If they succeed and he's lauded and he's paid more money, great. But it'd be better and cooler if he could Putin the team and try to bring them down. If they gave him more than six weeks, maybe he would have succeeded in bringing them down because he hated Revy that much. And I guess he hated Leeds that much. I'm making that up. This is speculation. <laughs> if that's what he wanted, if that's what Hooper wanted, I would even buy that. You want to sell me that story? I'll take it. Then that goes back to what I just talked about. If you want me to buy that as a viewer, maybe if you're a Leeds fan and you know all of this by rote, it's a different story. But for us as viewers that aren't familiar, give us something. Because at this point, Brian Clough is still a young man. He's in his late 30s, I think, at this point in his life. He was the youngest manager in football when he started with Darby, I believe. So that would have been late 20s, I imagine, early 30s. So how old was he? He was born in 1935 and died in 2004. So mid-30s around when the movie starts or well, at least the timeline which is the late 60s right and then the other storyline is in 1974 the year i was born 
So then he would have been going on 40, but not quite 40. And he died years before the movie was made. So that's why we say his family objected to this and not him, because he wasn't alive to object to it in the first place. And incidentally, look at his Wikipedia page for all the information. You also see that he was a striker. And we do see Sheen play a little bit of soccer in this movie. There's another angle in this movie that maybe should have been developed. And maybe Hooper just wanted to let it sit there and we could speculate about it as an audience later on. Is there an envy thing? He didn't get a chance to be the true player he wanted to be. We're going to go seven on seven and I'm going to play. That's unusual. Revy probably never did anything like that. But a former player, we saw it in Moneyball too, a movie that's also way more about the front office and behind the scenes stuff than it ever is about the field action. But then Billy Bean doesn't seem to be envious of his players. He wants them to be as good as they possibly can be in every little way. And even though Clough probably wants that too, he also doesn't really like them very much. Stephen Graham plays Bremner, gets probably the most screen time of any of the players, gets suspended for taking his shirt off in the game and all that. But maybe there's some kind of envy thing going on there, which is, well, I should have been a player too. Sorry, he was a player, but I should be a player on this team now. I see where you're going with it. In this case, I got less of a sense about the character in Clock the Man. He's the kind of guy, kind of like Rocky, when he tells Adrian... Don't drag me to this. I didn't do nothing. Yeah, he tries to walk away. He tells Adrian he's going to give it up. I got to be around it, Mick. I think that's the same thing with Clough. I don't know that he necessarily cares that much about playing versus managing coaching. I feel like he just wants to be on the pitch. He wants to be with the team. And there are moments where he talks about his playing career just offhandedly. Like when he goes to recruit Mackay, he says, I played against you because Mackay was a Scottish striker, right? So it would have been Scotland versus England. I played against you in the under 23s. And because, oh yeah, you were the loudmouth idiot that wouldn't shut up. He's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> He throws out the fact that he was like a fairly high level player in his youth, but I don't know if that carried over to a sense of resentment necessarily. And this is why the age thing sort of irks me if that's what the movie wants us to buy, because he is so young. And if you're going to blow up, you risk your career because at this point he'd come off a fairly ignominious resignation from Darby. And even if you follow the real life Clough versus the movie Clough storyline, he still didn't have a great stint with Brighton, the real guy. So it's not like he was a hot commodity. And he's a guy that's 39 years old, doesn't know anything else, but still clearly loves football. To go to Leeds at that point to purposely self-destruct, to take down Goliath as David. Okay, maybe. And again, if the movie sets it up enough, I would buy it. But it feels like you're just ruining the rest of your hopefully fairly long, although as we know, not terterribly long life. He's on Putin's payroll, so he's got that going. Oh, that's for him. true. He does have all of that post-Soviet oil <laughs> money flowing in. So yeah, why not? I guess his family would really object to what I'm saying right now, incidentally. <laughs> if they objected to this movie, they'd hate what I'm saying about this Putin thing, which I pulled out of my ass on the spot five or ten minutes ago. I like the random political angle. It's a nice little tangent. You did frame this movie correctly, I think. It is very much a football movie. But we see surprisingly little game action within the movie. We see a lot of practicing. We see a lot of guys running around the pitch. A lot of is debatable, though. Yeah, okay. That phrase doesn't even really fit. We see some of that. Yeah, we see more of it than we see game action, I guess, is maybe a more accurate way to say it. But one of the things that Hooper tried to do within this movie, it seems like, was interweave real footage from the era, whether it's interviews or game footage. There was one sequence where Leeds is playing... And it's footage of the real game. So the real leads playing in 1973 or four, I can't remember what year this sequence took place in. So you see the real Bremner, for instance, is on the pitch. And he doesn't really look all that much like Stephen Graham, really. You can squint and say, okay, I get what you're going for. But he doesn't look that close. 
So they play some of the real footage, and then they cut to an interview with Cole Meany as Don Revy, with the actor playing Revner in the background. You go from seeing the real guy to all of a sudden seeing the back head of the guy playing him that looks really nothing like him. I found it really jarring. And they do something similar with some of the older black and white footage of Darby, where you see the real Darby playing, and then it cuts to faux black and white footage of Michael Sheen as Brian Clough jumping out of the equivalent of the dugout or the bench, I guess, objecting okay. to a call. That was less jarring because it was just focused on Sheen and they did it in a black and white way. But there were sequences in the movie where they tried to interweave scene to scene, cut to cut, old footage and new, and it didn't really work all that well for me. As little game footage as we got... I kind of dug seeing the old stuff, but I would have just appreciated just seeing a sequence of the old stuff. Let's leave it at that. Don't cut back and forth. You said earlier in the podcast about the flashback structure being something that didn't entirely work. It wasn't confusing to you, but didn't entirely work. I agree. It was not confusing. A lot of movies have used the flashback structure and made it not work so well. Even good movies have sometimes failed at that. I wouldn't say this fails at it, but I think you're right too, is that when we know where he's going, then it makes it less impactful. British people that probably would have attended this movie more than American audiences and worldwide audiences because they know more about the story, they care more about this guy, they would have known all these things anyway. And for those of us who don't, you'd risk confusing us, even though I don't think that's really what happened. But when you show us getting to this team that he hates, and he hates the coach, and he has this irrational rage at them, even when he's with them, but we know he goes there long before the movie actually truly gets to that point. There's no drama really anyway in this movie. It's not a typical sports movie. It's not a big game kind of film. But you've taken away that drama of it building to that point. I'd actually be interested in seeing this movie done sequentially. Would it work better? Maybe in the editing, they changed it from being a sequential film. I would agree with you 100%. Give me the Ellis cut of Damned United. That is just sequential <laughs> in nature. And four hours long somehow. I'm not sure how, but it has to be that long. This movie is too short. It's not that much more than an hour and a half long. I already criticized it not having a third act. There's a part of me that admires that. It's like Bull Durham, another great sports movie, which has plenty of sports action. But A, there's no big game. And B, we don't even really get a full closure on our main player. He goes to the big leagues, then we never see him again. And that's fine, because the real story is Costner and Stranded anyway. But that movie made that work. I guess a lot of sports movies have. I mentioned Draft Day earlier, which has some sports action, which is supposed to be Bo and Vontae and Ray playing, and of course they all get drafted, and we see plenty of action with those actors. Chabic Bozeman, of course, is Vontae. But a movie that's way more about the boardroom and behind-the-scenes stuff, and I appreciate a movie like that. Moneyball does that, too. And I don't need more soccer, because I don't really care about soccer. There are soccer movies where that's what the primary focus is. Again, I don't know what else to say about what I'm trying... I'm losing my train of thought. I lost my train of thought during the movie. I'm failing in this podcast. I apologize to our fans. Don't hold this against me. Here's something I can do. The real love story in this movie, because this is not a sexual movie, unless gazing at Timothy Spall's unruly teeth is your thing, <laughs> it's a hard no about scoring at this movie. But Timothy Spall is a really good actor. He really is. Harry Potter actor, as is Jim Broadbent. A lot of actors in this movie, I think, at least in small roles, but Spall and Broadbent especially. Broadbent is the other guy I should have mentioned earlier. He's fun in this. He's Longson, who runs the Darby team and happily accepts the resignation, which was a ploy by Clough that didn't work. But the real love story is Pete and Brian. They have the huge fight, and they're not together when he goes to Leeds. But then he goes crawling back, literally on his knees. I think sincere. I'm not entirely sure it was sincere if it was just an act, as portrayed in the film. But then they end up managing the successful Nottingham Forest team. That's the real love story. And their hug at the end, I'm not implying anything, but that's a long 
long hug. I think it was entirely sincere. And you're right. That is the real love story in this. It doesn't matter that Clough had a wife. The real love story is between Taylor and Clough. As much as I might not have loved the way the movie handled that whole breakup of the relationship and reconciliation, the actual scene where he does get down literally on his knees. You know how I know that is the love story? Because the final thing that Taylor says to Clough, this is what I need you to say to me, is, please, baby, take me back. He makes Clough call him baby as part of it, which I thought was pretty fantastic while he's on his hands and knees. Tom Hooper. Now, I haven't seen Cats, so I won't comment on that, but that is resume in front of me. I haven't seen Red Dust either, his first film. But this is a love story between two guys. We're saying that now. The King's speech is, even though the King is married to the current Queen's mom, but the real love story in that film is Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth's characters. Les Mis, an antagonistic love story between Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman. Okay, sure. I'm stretching a little bit. And The Danish Girl, which is another Oscar winner. Man, this guy's directed a lot of big-name actors to some awards and things. But that is a transgender film, so maybe not so much there, and I don't know anything about cats. But some of his films, three of them at least, have had male clashes that are all about, I hate you, but I also love you, and let's get it on. There's a lot of bromancing slash innuendo going on in his movies. I think there is. Could be. I think you correctly also labeled the interview that Clough does where he gets ambushed by the fact that Don Revy is also going to be present. And... That proves to be ultimately the climax of the movie, strangely, because we already know that Clough has been fired at that point. We know that Don Revy at that point is the manager for England, but we don't know what his ultimate success will or won't be. So at this point in the movie, it feels like the Clough storyline has begun to resolve, but we don't have the third act resolution yet. And the Don Revy story is not one that we've ever terribly been invested in because right off the bat the first thing we learn about this movie is the fact that he's been named manager for england so we already know he's gone from leeds throughout the movie and all that kind of stuff so then we're left with this interview with the two men you kind of expect that the interview will be a little bit of a cathartic experience for clough because this whole movie is about the angst he feels by being slighted by Revy, right? By being ignored effectively by Revy. But blue balls. Yeah. He's got Revy balls, Revy blue balls. <laughs> and so you feel like, okay, so he's been ambushed in this interview he agreed to do by Revy being here. Maybe this is the moment where he can get it all on the table, express his true feelings, what happened, tell the world. And he and Revy can maybe, if not resolve their relationship, at least understand where each man is coming from respectively. I didn't feel like we really got that. Instead, we sort of got this beatdown of Clough even further by Revy, not callously, but just laying out reality in front of this guy's face in a way that you think that, oh, okay, so maybe this is his come to Jesus moment. But then again, not really, because it's not like he repents what he did. This was when I said, I got to research this a little bit more and I have to understand a, the character, and B, I want to see how close to reality Michael Sheen is, because as much as I've been slagging on the movie for like the last 20 minutes, I still really dug his performance. And I'm like, I got to see if this is what Revy's mannerisms really like. This interview in its entirety is on YouTube between Clough, Revy, and the third guy, the interviewer's name, I don't know. You see the actual reality of the interview is Clough actually doing exactly what I expected the movie to do, which is where he's saying, I took this job because A, it's the best job in the league. I wanted to do something that you, Don Revy, did not do. 
I told everybody I wanted to win better than you because what else could I say? You were a legend and I was being asked whether or not I felt I was fit to follow in your shoes. And the only way I could get the job is saying, yeah, I'm going to win and I'm going to win better than Don Revy did. And as soon as I watched that segment of the interview, because it's a long one, it's like half an hour long and there's like a five minute stretch. That's kind of really interesting. That humanizes the guy. I understand the real Brian Clough. I understand the seeming arrogance and the way he went in because you're following a living legend. And the only way you can hype yourself up for that challenge is by telling yourself and telling everyone around you that, yeah, you're going to do better than the last guy who is beloved by all. Instead, what we got from the movie was I'm doing all of this out of spite. And that felt both less sympathetic and less believable. Just follow reality, guys, because I think sometimes the reality of the situation, if you were a little bit truer to what actually happened, because it's on film, you can watch it verbatim if you want to. I think I read somewhere that Clough was not surprised by the appearance of Revy on that show, the way they portray in the film. So if that's the case, and if you went that route, then it could be all about him building up to, I'm going to tell him what I think about him finally, face to face, and confront him about why he slighted me before, and Revy sloughed it off. I didn't know who you were, although... As somebody points out online, a guy as meticulous as him would know who the opposing coach was, no matter what team it was, even if it was a lesser team, a second division team. So that's probably Revy not showing Clef respect years ago when he was with Darby and Revy was still managing Leeds. But either way, whether Clef knew he was coming on the show or didn't know he was coming on the show, he would be thinking quickly and saying, my big moment's coming. The condoms are ready. The booze is ready. The fireplace is on. I'm all revved up and no place to go because Revy walked away and I got no satisfaction. Maybe that's the point of Hooper's movie is to have this movie have no real satisfaction. And maybe somebody strong-armed him into saying, well, of course, it's also real, so you got to be truthful. But maybe somebody strong-armed him into saying what really happened with them, meaning Clough and Taylor, that they end up being successful and Revy wasn't. Look at that whole thing about... Who do you think you are? I'm Brian Clough. And anybody watching this movie who knows nothing about soccer would say, and? <laughs> yeah, I had that reaction. But within the context of the performance by Sheen and what we'd seen through the movie, that was also a perfect statement for the character to make in that moment. So I both oh, it was. loved it and at the same time was just kind of like, yeah. Although apparently there's a statue of at least Clough, but I think Clough and Taylor both. I think there's a statue of them now out front of the Derby pitch stadium. Okay. Got to give them some due. So we always talk about the depiction of the sport, which I think what we see is fine, I guess. I don't know much about soccer anyway, and we don't really see that much of it in the first place. Stephen Graham, the other guy, said that they're playing it well enough. Stephen Graham, by the way, played soccer. Well, maybe he didn't play it, but he's in a soccer movie named Goal. He's also Jason Statham's partner in Snatch. I knew he did the face from somewhere. That's has been in plenty is. of movies. Yeah. And that, in a way, is a boxing film, so maybe we'll cover Snatch one of these days. Brad Pitt is so funny in that. They all are, but Pitt, of course, steals the film. So, yeah, the soccer seems okay, but there's not that much of it. And that's okay. You don't have to have a ton of sports in your sports movie. As far as scoring, it is a male love story without sex and romance. So, I guess from that standpoint, you can score, but these are not attractive men. Michael Sheen is the closest thing to a heartthrob, <laughs> and even he is a, what, B- minus in Hollywood at best, as far as looks go. Although he was dating Sarah Silverman for a while there, and that's not Really? Him. Good for you, Michael Sheen. Before you be too hasty about the scorability of this movie, Ryan, let us not forget that there is a fairly extended sequence in Mallorca of British tourists slathering sunscreen on their pasty white flesh in a way that is unsettling, to say the least. So, depending on what you're into, maybe 
Just maybe you can make it happen. Just delicious. <laughs> By the way, I've been to Mallorca. Bev and I did for a honeymoon. Highly recommend it. And it's also one of the few truly bright moments of the whole film. It's relatively drab film on purpose, I guess. And I looked it up. Leeds and Derby are both basically in the middle of England. They're landlocked. Maybe they're on rivers and lakes and things. I don't know. But they're not anywhere near the coastline. Brighton is. Yeah. As they say, Brighton's almost France, which is far away from London, far away from the heart of the city or the country, I guess. As far as the score goes, I'll give it a seven, which is pretty much what I gave it when I saw it about 10 years ago. I guess like Bagger Vance two weeks ago, when I finished editing, I thought maybe I was too generous in saying it's a seven because you and I were pretty critical of it. And we've been pretty critical of this movie too. But when you say a seven out of 10, you're saying if you're a sports movie fan, you should probably watch this movie. But at the same point, I wanted to shake this movie and the director a lot of the time. So take that for what you will. But I think... I mean, at least from my perspective, when I watch movies, a lot of what I take away from it as far as whether or not it was successful in appealing to me, it's like whether or not I was affected by it in some way, shape or form at the end of it. And I think the most damning thing we can and I think have been saying about this movie is that we basically weren't affected at all. Mm -hmm. I don't want to absolutely tear this movie to shreds because there's redeeming qualities within it, certainly not the least of which are the performances we've talked about. And I would watch this just to see Michael Sheen play Brian Clough. I agree. But even as much as I enjoyed his performance, I didn't really care that much about Clough. I cared the most about Peter. He's the most sympathetic character, unquestionably. So you do feel a little bit of happiness when he reconciles because you know that's going to improve his situation, I guess. But ultimately, I felt utterly unaffected by this movie almost in totality. So... I would struggle to give it more than like a five and a half just to get it above the 50-50 oh. mark. I feel the same way about it you do. I feel like if you're a soccer fan specifically, but a sports fan generally, or even just a fan of Michael Sheen, watch this movie because you'll get some enjoyment out of it probably. But I can't say I would recommend it to anyone else outside of those narrow bands of people. That's true, but a lot of movies we've watched, that's true about though. Yeah, and there are times when I feel like I'm certainly more generous towards a movie than maybe it should get. But using Banker Vance as an example, for all of its flaws, we can point towards specific moments in that movie. I saw what you were going for, and you got me anyway, movie, so I give you credit for that. And there's precious few movies you can look at and not criticize to some degree. How many times have either one of us given a movie a nine or better? I could maybe count it on one hand. Yeah. So anything within a five and a half, six to seven and a half range is like, yeah, there's redeeming qualities to this, but probably depends on who you are as far as how much you'll like it. The weird coincidence of this is that I just happened to binge watch Ted Lasso starring Jason Sudeikis as the American football coach that gets transplanted to the UK to become a UK football coach, so a soccer coach. The thing that that show succeeds at more than anything else, and I'll tell you, Allison loved this show, and the fact that it's a show largely about soccer that she loved should tell anybody anything about it. It does a fantastic job about portraying characters and a series of characters in such a way that they're a little bit complex, but you care deeply about pretty much all of them when it's all said and done. And there's a character in that show that is a bloody asshole and you shouldn't care about him, but you do because you can understand some of what he is going through, where he's coming from. And so when I was watching this movie, I could see that kind of thing being attempted in Brian Clough. Yeah, he's a bit of an asshole. He's brash. He's outspoken and he's often inconsiderate. 
but I want you to care about him. And I just kept looking for why, because I've just seen it done better. And so maybe that's tainting my perception a little bit to the negative, but it's got some good stuff going for it. Good, good comparison to Ted Lasso, which is something I've not seen, but I probably should try to. You know what the problem here is then? I think we've already determined this a couple times in the podcast, and I'll end it this way by saying, Tom Hooper, you're not a good director. You're not listening to this, so I can say it again. <laughs> you're not a good director. Okay, let's get out of here. Soccer movie done. We've done two of them. We know we don't know much about soccer. We acknowledge that, but we hope we didn't disappoint our audience. What do you mean? I even used the word pitch. I did too, yes. We called it not the field too often. We call it the pitch. And they call it field manager, not pitch manager. So we can call it field anyway if they put it that way. Well, let's do something we don't know much about either in two weeks. We'll do something we've never done before also, and that is cover a movie that came up before either of us was even born. It's the quintessential Bruce Lee MMA flick, Enter the Dragon. Is that going to be the oldest movie we've done? So far. Longest Yard was 1974. This is 1973. Oh, there you go. I didn't realize it was that old. And that's episode number 79. Also, the three-year anniversary of this podcast will happen before we post that chat about Enter the Dragon. So happy early anniversary to us. And thanks once again to all of you for listening to us ramble about sporty films in this episode and hopefully in a lot of other ones. So you can find us on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. You'll find all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Amazon, and I don't know, probably just laying on the floor. Take her easy, wankas. Although Brian Clough and I don't really care if you do. Because he's Brian motherfucking Clough.